Welcome to Tequila Talks, the podcast that provides a comprehensive understanding of the world of finance and technology today. This show is brought to you by Nova Payment, a mission-critical financial and payments infrastructure provider. I'm Alex Johnson, and I'll be hosting the first episodes, where I'll be talking to industry leaders and delving into the business models of some of the most successful fintechs operating right now across the Americas. And I'm Nicole Kasperson, and I'll hear the human stories and insights behind the headlines that most people miss. Let's do this. When you're looking at the secret sauce to what is the next go-to-market success, it really always comes down to consumer convenience, but also recognizing people will vote with their dollars. People spend money in things that they believe in. And so at the end of the day, what makes Sunrise Banks different from any other issuer out there? It's the mission and the people that breathe life into that mission every day. And so when we're looking at opportunities, we want them to be a echo chamber for what we're looking to do, to lift people up, to bring people together, to increase access to financial technology services. My guest today is Tyler Seidel, Chief Fintech Officer at Sunrise Banks. Tyler, thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. The pleasure is all mine, Alex. The pleasure is all mine. Oh, no. Well, the pleasure is mine. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your expertise. We're going to talk a lot about banking as a service, get sort of the community banking perspective on fintech. And I kind of thought we could start, actually, with me admitting something to you, which is that uh, of all of the people that I've ever met, and particularly the people I've interviewed for this podcast, I don't think I've met someone who's had a job title that was so awesome that I legitimately wanted to steal it. But I have now because Chief Fintech Officer is just a fantastic, fantastic title. So but maybe by way of introduction, please tell us what is a Chief Fintech Officer? What do you do for Sunrise Banks? And, and how did you get this amazing job? So for us within our four walls of our institution, a chief fintech officer is really a one-stop shop for accountability within the organizational enterprise as it pertains to products, partnerships, as well as go-to-market strategies, delivery, and revenue drivers, right? Or at least diversification thereof. It also adds an element of sustainability or mission alignment. So that generally is what the role would entail. Awesome. And I was just maybe going to color in a little bit as to what that could look like in terms of day-to-day responsibilities. It would include things like sales or business development. And so by that, we look at prospects or meet with them. We look to understand the spirit and the intent of what they're trying to do. Uh, Responsible for product or product vertical strategies. And so when we think of macro market economic forces and how we want to position ourselves or our portfolio just to take advantage of some of those trends or otherwise, there's an element of that along with partner relationship management. Just digging in then a little bit deeper to that, for listeners who may not be familiar with Sunrise Banks, can you give us a little bit of an overview of the bank, what it does? You sort of referenced its uh, mission, its focus on sustainability. Can you give us a bit of an overview there and then how banking as a service fits in kind of broadly within your four walls? Sunrise Banks, for those that may not be familiar, we're a social enterprise. And as the joke would go, we just happen to be a bank. So at the end of the day, what we're interested in is a double bottom line, and it's more than a tagline. We want to do business, but also do good. And you can see that by way of a couple of our market manifestations, that being we're a B corporation, right? We demonstrate a high social environmental performance. We're also a community development financial institution. We're part of the Global Alliance for Banking and Values, which for those that may not know, it's a network of about 70 or so institutions that 
Use finance to deliver sustainable economic impact value, whether it's social or environmental. So those are just a couple of aspects or certifications, a couple of examples of what we've done or what we've earned that just substantiate our mission and certainly adds a little bit of color, perhaps, for your audience. And banking as a service specifically, like I know you obviously you manage all of your fintech partners. This is an area you guys have been focused on. What do you do around banking as a service today? And and how long have you been sort of focused on that as an element of what Sunrise does? So we've been focused on that for roughly about five years, quite a long time, in fact. So we were an early adopter. We identified it certainly as a trend. There was a lot of growing momentum in that space. And we thought that Bass would be a unique opportunity for the bank uh, to kind of level up our mission. And by that, I mean, add an element of velocity to our go-to-market approach, whether it's the varying products that we offer or the channels by which we bring them to market. And Bass could certainly be that, if not both, depending on the certain instances. And so that's what really attracted our interest to the Bass space. Got it. Got it. Okay, perfect. So when I was digging back through your LinkedIn and sort of looking at your history working at Sunrise, uh, and you've been there for a while, right? How long have you been at the bank? Ooh, you know, a decade. Yeah. Going on over 10 years this year. Yeah, we're going on 11 right now. Awesome. Well, congratulations. I appreciate it. Um, so on just sort of your journey, one of the, I think, first jobs you had at Sunrise was the prepaid regulatory compliance manager at the bank. For those maybe who are slightly newer to fintech or haven't been around for quite so long, you may be surprised to learn, but a lot of the roots of banking as a service and really fintech as a B2C enterprise, at least, actually came out of the prepaid world. And a lot of the initial banking as a service programs were built on prepaid product constructs. And I'd be curious just, I mean, going back in time a little bit to get your perspective on how those prepaid roots have influenced the development of fintech and banking as a service and and how they sort of shaped your views on compliance? Because I know compliance in particular has been a, a job function for you across a couple of different roles at the bank. To me, prepaid program managers, certainly those that are more so on the leading edge of innovation, are some of what I would consider to be the very first fintechs. They may predate the modern nomenclature, but really the technology at the time and the spirit of what they were trying to do was bring technology or financial products and tools and make them more accessible to the everyday user or those that were un or underbanked. And so when I think we look at that spirit and the intent of what that mission of fintech is, or at least how I perceive it to be for the space that we operate in, there's a lot of great social parallels there. And so I don't think that you could really understate the influence that prepaid has had on banking as a service. Because when we look at banking as a service, or even some of the products that come from that, so banking as a service, you can define that many different ways. Are you looking at it from the customer's perspective, the bank perspective, or maybe that middleware perspective, or you're the provider in that instance? But in either case, what we're seeing is a lot of financial product iteration and innovation happening on top of what prepaid created, whether it was the pooled for-benefit accounts, whether it was bringing all these folks into a market, that being the under underbanked, where in the past they might not have been being served, well, prepaid was a market maker of sorts. It was the first of its kind at the time, and it started to create an avenue or a platform by which folks could take bass offerings and the iterations outside of that, whether it's remote deposit capture, budget tools, mobile banking, which is maybe now uh, more commonplace than ever. But even behind the scenes, when you look at prepaid card technology or 
for lack of a better term, how you would capture those accounts, bookkeep those accounts. They also provide the means by which a lot of digital wallets are hosted on today and even peer-to-peer payment platforms. So I think that the influence of prepaid or the initial prepaid program managers and the product created the base of what we see today. For me, it was a stepping stone. And as technology increases, the scale, the scope, and the ease by which we can do business, whether it's process or technology, that is what's leading to a lot of what we see in terms of velocity of innovation. But we wouldn't have been here uh, without prepaid. The compliance piece in particular is one that I'm really interested in. I mean, I think that we've obviously seen a lot of changes happening in the banking as a service space recently as it relates to compliance and regulators getting more sort of uh, actively involved and interested in the space. And again, your roots being in this from like a prepaid compliance perspective, I wonder if you can share any stories or anecdotes or, or things you observed in the very, very early days of some of these prepaid programs as it relates to the the compliance challenges around them, right? Because I, I think that core to banking as a service is this notion that there are other parties that are acting on the bank's behalf, functionally working with end customers and and the sort of compliance implications of that relationship. I, candidly, I think it's something we struggle with as an industry within banking as a service. Can you sort of talk a little bit about that piece? At the initial onset of prepaid, it was kind of, for lack of a better turn of phrase, the Wild West, right? So folks created a product that really didn't expressly live within the confines of reggie. And maybe where it started to go a little bit afoul is when folks didn't want to apply things like common sense consumer protections. And so then things like zero liability perhaps would step in, but not in every instance because negligence for zero liability might carry water in terms of not paying out. But in Reggie, we know it certainly does not. And so when we looked at that space and how it started to develop, the development really came in an effort by the regulators to protect consumers. And some of those, I think, were common sense protections and absolutely very supportive. I think we're what you're catching on to, and certainly what we're seeing in this space, is that when folks start to engage within a banking as a service model, if they don't understand that at the end of the day, it really comes down to roles and responsibilities of what that party is doing for the bank, and then the bank needs to develop a commiserate oversight and governance structure to oversee those activities in a manner that's commiserate with the risk that they're presenting. And today, I feel like, and how do you know what you don't know so we can preface that, But if you're an issuing institution looking to get into national products and you're going to be working with a BAS provider to get you there, my experience in the BAS space is that they're very unique, each different provider, in a sense of what they'll provide in terms of roles, responsibilities, tools, forward pathing, the processors that they use or otherwise. And so it behooves the community bank, the bank, the enterprise, that when they're doing their due diligence to understand very clearly roles and responsibilities, how those tie back to regulatory obligations. And then you guys need to, and by you guys, we're talking to the issuing banks out there. Those folks will need to develop a program by which to oversee it in a manner that's consistent with what the regulator would expect. Just because there's a third party in there that's moving the needle in terms of forward progress, whether they're handling disputes, taking customer complaints, those two activities might seem innocuous, but one of them has a reggae component that you need to demonstrate and ensure you're providing oversight and that they're performing in a manner commiserate with your expectations, or at the very least, the regulation. Then the other one is things like complaints. Well, we should be looking at them for UDAP, trends, patterns, or practices that could indicate something is going a little bit amiss or sideways. And so in there is really the talent and I think the rub. What are they doing? How are you overseeing it? What are your SLAs? 
Because at the end of the day, those service level agreements are going to give you an opportunity to hold folks accountable, those being your third parties, but also they're typically the best opportunity you have to exit a relationship that might not be working well. So on that note, then, I think the other thing that makes banking as a service kind of interesting or challenging from a compliance perspective, it kind of goes to your point. I wonder if you experience this or you can kind of characterize what this relationship uh, kind of looks like and how it works is there's an element of this not being sort of a typical third-party service provider, right? A lot of like the rules around banking as a service come out of the fact that uh, originally, like if you pick on like the OCC as an example, they have guidance around how to manage third-party vendors, right? And they call them vendors specifically because the model that was sort of in mind when everyone was thinking about this was, oh, well, you know, a bank will work with a technology company for uh, servicing or for core system or for something sort of like that. Uh, and here are the requirements that you have to have around knowing the company, doing some initial due diligence before you onboard them, making sure they have these certifications and are strong on data security and blah, 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 blah. All of that, though, sort of, I think, is built around this premise that's no longer true with banking as a service, which is that the bank has 100% of the sort of commercial leverage with the third-party service provider uh, because they're a vendor of the bank. In the case of fintech and banking as a service, well, it has elements of being a third-party service provider, and there are obviously roles and responsibilities, and the bank is still accountable for doing the things that a bank does and needs to be able to answer those questions with its regulator. The commercial relationship between the bank and the fintech company is a little bit different. And I would say that the leverage is not necessarily all on the side of the bank, right? You have to go out and compete for fintech companies. You have to make sure that you're a good partner for fintech companies. Like banking as a service is competitive. How do you think about the role that those commercial interests and sort of competing for fintech partners plays in compliance and just like forming good relationships? That's a brilliant question because there is kind of a supply and demand side of economies, right? And so if you're an issuing institution and you have a big opportunity, they're more inclined to have a little bit more sway in terms of your risk profile, your standard operating procedures, but then they typically come with those crazy ideas like alternative settlement model, discount to face, right? Maybe we don't want to have all the money on deposit for the face value of your card product. How could that look? How would that work? And so you do find yourself in a unique situation where you have a great market opportunity and you have to iterate. And you need to iterate within your comfort zone to the extent that you can. And so at the end of the day, for me in my role, and I'll position this just strictly from my reality, is that taking risk and taking chances is fantastic, especially if you're going to improve a customer experience, especially if it doesn't, at the end of the day, jeopardize the banking charter or customer data integrity. Those are really two big factors for me. But one other thing is that When you're looking to iterate and you're looking to create, what you don't want to do is create yourself into a restrictive enforcement action because you have a whole portfolio of folks that are relying on you to stay good in the industry and to keep your doors open so they can continue to deliver on their products and services to their end users and customers. So when folks are looking at these big relationship opportunities, what they really need to do is ground themselves into what they have already, take that abundant mindset, kind of check FOMO at the door, And make sure that you're moving in a space that's intentional and that when you're looking at it, you can readily tie back roles, responsibilities, and then worst case scenario, involve your regulator. If there is something that you're looking to do 
and you're not sure how you feel about it. You put a lot of thought into it, some effort. You have a little bit of design and architecture thinking already taking place. You've identified what you feel the pitfalls are, some of the risks, some of the regulatory optics, reputational macros or otherwise. Connect with your regulator. Get their thoughts and opinions on it. At the end of the day, and we're an OCC regulated institution, we have been met with fantastic co-creation. If we have a question or an idea, uh, there's certainly somebody that we go to that we trust and we formed a fantastic relationship with. So I think it's a great question because at the end of the day, those big opportunities do typically push institutions out of their comfort zone are certainly up to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's very well said. And I'm glad you mentioned the regulators and kind of co-creating as a, a point too. I mean, there's this sort of strange dynamic, right, in banking as a service. I would almost analogize it to, uh, I have young kids at home, a, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And one of the things my wife and I are trying to teach them, and it's difficult, is we always want you to be able to talk to us, right? Like we want to be able to, you, you to tell us what's going on, right? And, you know, at the same time, we're also trying to teach them things that we want them to do and things that we don't want them to do. And we have expectations for their behavior. It's a really hard balance to strike, right? Because I want my son to know that like, hey, that was the wrong thing to do, that you made a mistake. But I also want him to come tell me that this thing has happened or that he's having this problem or that he did this bad thing, but he's really sorry about it, like whatever. Like I want the lines of communication to be very open. And this balance, I think, is really, really tricky. And there are definitely times when he won't come to me because he knows that the thing he's doing is probably not something I would totally approve of. And he kind of wants to go off and do it himself. And um, this is maybe an overly paternalistic analogy for banking as a service, but I do think it's interesting that both between the bank and the fintech company, as well as the bank and their regulator, there are like these levels of sort of paternalism that sort of factor through the whole thing where it's like, we'd really prefer not to mention that to our regulator because it's kind of a gray area. And like, we don't, if we ask, then we run the risk of them saying no or, you know, flipping out or being mad about it. But at the same time, I think the point you're getting at, I'd love for you to comment on this, is there's a larger risk to not doing so, right? And I think that's the thing that I've noticed about banking as a service over the last couple of years in particular is the bill always comes due eventually, right? Like if you're a fintech company and you're doing some things that you maybe your partner bank wouldn't be totally like comfortable with, you can not mention it to them in the short term. But it's not like they're not going to find out eventually, right? And so like you're just sort of kicking the problem down the road. Same thing between banks and their regulators. Like if you're in a gray area that your examiner might not be comfortable with, yeah, you don't have to tell them today. You don't have to call them proactively, but like it's going to come up eventually. And it seems like a lot of the challenges that we've had in banking as a service globally as an industry have come from that sort of impulse to kick the can down the road rather than like have the maybe slightly painful or uncomfortable conversation today. What's What's been your observation on that front? At the end of the day, and I know folks will look at it like, oh, regulators, they're the quickest path to killing a great opportunity. Well, at the end of the day, that's your sustainability model. And it's easier to get in front of it and to have that conversation when there is no skill there. So you feel uncomfortable with something. Instead of maybe taking the opportunity to have a conversation, which could be enlightening, it could be opening, and it could be empowering. I have not found our regulator to be a path to know. Uh, instead, they ask smart questions. Have you thought about this, this, this? They're not giving you a cut and dry yes or no, but what they're doing is they're challenging your frame of mind, your frame of reference, and how you're thinking through it. And so at the end of the day, it's a lot better to build something that might look a little bit different, might not be exactly what you had on your dream board, but it checks all the boxes, 
So you have a sustainability model there. You know your portfolio is safe. All the businesses that are issuing with you, they're all safe. But you're also catching it before there's any scale to it. And typically, if there's something going sideways, the examiners are going to have a different view if it only impacts one, two, couple hundred people than if it's hitting 60, 70, 80,000 people. And so at the end of the day, if it comes to consumer protections, dispute processing or otherwise, a systemic error is so much larger when you have, obviously, scale to your portfolio. So when folks are thinking, ah, this feels uncomfortable or I want to hide this from a regulator and I can't remember the quote, I feel like it could be Marcus Aurelius, but the path that's blocked is really the path forward. And so when you're looking at it and it's tough and it's hard and I need to find the path of least resistance, sometimes the path that's not traveled is the path you should be on. I love that. I think that makes all the sense in the world. And I it, it's an interesting contrast from the fintech perspective, right? Because I think from a, a fintech perspective, a lot of what founders are trained to think of in terms of is, what are the milestones I need to hit from a VC investment venture perspective, right? And so to your point, having a conversation with a venture capital investor before you have gotten traction and can demonstrate that traction to a venture capital investor is a bad thing. That is a mistake. That's the wrong sequencing. But what you're saying, and I think it makes all the sense in the world, is the reverse is true for regulators. And in the case of fintech companies for bank partners, having those conversations before you get traction is so much better than having those conversations after you've gotten traction and you have some problem that instead of impacting 10 customers is impacting 10,000 customers. So I think that's like an incredibly good point. Absolutely. And inevitably, if it's impacting a customer, it's going to impact process and it could impact technology. And so now you guys are in market with an offering. We're on the back end. You need to make changes in an effort to keep it sustainable in the eyes of the regulator that invariably could impact or result in consumer impact, whether it's to the service that they're providing or just the use of the card product or otherwise. And so all of those are reputational damage. And again, it goes back to what you were saying about like risking your charter. I mean, at the end of the day, your reputation and your charter, which in some ways is a manifestation of your reputation in the market and with regulators, like that is the asset that you have and needs to be protected and needs to be taken seriously. I want to circle back to something else you said about not getting sucked into FOMO. Which is hard because I'm in the cryptocurrency space, so I FOMO all the time. Right, right. Okay, yeah. So like crypto maybe is the best example of like, oh my God, we got to do this to kind of jump in. This is amazing. There's a huge opportunity. Everything goes up and to the right. That obviously is not true. We've seen a slowdown on a number of different fronts over the last, you know, six months to a year. And I think it's a, a healthy reminder that a lot of trouble comes from sort of chasing that FOMO. And I guess I'm curious from your perspective, and maybe it sort of fits into like what your thesis is and what your mission as a company is, but like, what is your mental model for selecting potential partners that are a good fit for you, right? I mean, if you if there's so many out there that you could chase, and of the ones you could chase, a subset come to you, and these are pitches coming at you that you can choose to swing at or not, and you have to choose which ones to swing at, what is that process of sort of chopping it down to get to the ones that like are a good fit, are going to be low risk and easy to work with based on kind of these compliance things we've been talking about, and that will be a good business opportunity for Sunrise? So when we're looking at opportunities and we're kind of, a, for lack of a better term of phrase, applying a filter. So to your point, we assess hundreds of opportunities a year. 
and we may go to market with a fraction of that, probably lesser than 10%, depending on the amount of co-creation. If it's a de novo product, the market hasn't experienced our speed to market probably is a little bit slower. If it's something within the prepaid realm, for lack of a better turn of phrase, rinse and repeat, uh, then we can certainly move with a lot more distinction and fluidity. But what we look at primarily, or at least what I look at, is a mission fit. So are these folks looking to do good? What is the net benefit of what they're looking to bring to market? Is it unique or innovative? I think we all remember a time when Instagram was coming up. Maybe I'm dating myself. And there was Facebook. And folks looking at the <laughs> yep, platform. I'm right there like, with oh, you, man. do the same thing. Yeah. But one of them will allow you to post your pictures with one click, whereas the other one took two or three. And you could see the market share building under Instagram to a point until Meta had to reach out and actually acquire it. And then here we are. And so when you're looking at the secret sauce to what is the next go-to-market success, it really always comes down to consumer convenience, but also recognizing, and certainly the, the most recent generation is proof positive of this, is that people will vote with their dollars. People spend money in things that they believe in. And so at the end of the day, what makes Sunrise Banks different from any other issuer out there? It's the mission and the, the people that breathe life into that mission every day. And so when we're looking at opportunities, we want them to be a echo chamber for what we're looking to do, to lift people up, to bring people together, to increase access to financial technology services. But there is also a component that we look at, which is high tech and high touch. We like those partnerships that have great technology, but prioritize user experience because that is the quickest way to building a brand. And that's quickest way to building authenticity is to deliver on what you say, but live that mission every day. One thing I have observed, and I'm sure doing what you do with that lens and that filter, you see this even more than I do, is everyone in fintech talks about what they do in terms of the good it does for consumers and for the world. Fintech is a very optimistic industry that way, right? Glasses uh, <laughs> always have full, Alex, you're right. Glasses, yeah, it's always half full. And like it's, um, to pick on a counter example, like, there are industries like management consulting where if you talk to McKinsey, they're pretty like, yeah, you know, we're McKinsey, we do what we do. That's sometimes nice and sometimes not so nice. And like, we're pretty like uh, honest about that. Uh, there are certain industries that are honest about their intentions. Fintech, I think one of the things that's delightful about it, but also challenging, and I'm sure you run into this, is everyone portrays what they're doing as serving the underbanked, democratizing access to financial services, improving the lives of consumers. Uh, just, I mean, like everything has that very sort of positive kind of ESG-ish type spin to it. That's just the nature of, of fintech. How do you parse all of the different companies that say that on their website from the ones that actually do that? Because I know you guys take this seriously. It's not just a, a, a thing on your website that you you live and breathe this. How do you recognize the ones that are actually sort of in alignment with you on this versus the ones that, I'm not saying they're bad companies, but they may not take that quite as seriously? At the end of the day, it is very unique because you're right, the industry kind of uses that as social cover. And I think it comes from a space of all big, bad banks. Well, no, we're actually iterating. We're trying to. And so I think that there is a lot of that in the space. It's kind of like the term greenwashing, where people will apply it to anything just in an effort to capture attention, market share, or otherwise. And you certainly will see that in financial technology companies. I think at the end of the day, the first place to start is their leadership team. What have they been doing? So they talk about lifting folks up. Do they do any volunteer work? 
And so when we're doing due diligence, we're looking at all of those things. We're looking at any negative news, things that maybe speak counter to their interests. What businesses or enterprises were they involved with before uh, they started this company or came to work here as an example. But on the back end, because your filter criteria up front, which is a big portion of it, your due diligence, enhanced due diligence and what you're letting through the door, sometimes you miss one. And so on the back end, what we evaluate is culture of compliance. So at the end of the day, are they delivering what they say? Do they take findings seriously? Are they keeping up with change management? Are they remediating and hitting their SLAs? These things all speak to a culture. And so we look at leading indicators or other data points that we have access to to make some of those determinations for us or to help inform our perspective on how our partnership is doing and delivering on that. That's so interesting. I mean, I I guess I had never really thought about the correlation between a compliance-heavy culture and a moral responsibility, for lack of a better term. And I, I think that's a really sort of interesting framing to use, right? Because the one sort of counter uh, philosophy that's very present in tech generally and fintech specifically is this sort of um, move fast and break things kind of ethos. Not that you can't have that and that that doesn't provide a value. Certainly it does. But I do think there is this sort of interesting idea that you're hinting at, which is like, if from a compliance perspective, they get through the door, we're working with them, it's going well, but they just don't seem to really care about that culture of compliance. And when something gets broken, making sure that it gets fixed and that that's never going to happen again. And just sort of that care and attention to like those details that I'd never really thought about it that way, but that I would imagine would be pretty indicative of, ooh, you know what, this might not have been the best partner to pick. And like, they, we might not have as much alignment as we thought. So the connection between those two things is really interesting. And to your point, sometimes it's probably a thing where you don't necessarily know until you work with them, because I guess the other part of banking as a service that I think people maybe misunderstand a little bit is that it's not just this contractual relationship on paper, right? Like you are working with these folks daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, like you are like working together in an ongoing fashion continually and you get a good sense for who these people are. Absolutely true. I mean, we're interacting every single day with all of our partnerships, whether it's through reconciliation, billing, things that come up, new product, product iterations, customer service, complaints, right? Those things happen. So we're very involved with all of our issuance activities. And you're absolutely right. We found that compliance, risk management, and folks' approach to that, because at the end of the day, they're typically, in our space, obligations that center around customer customer happiness. And so, yeah, they might feel like obligations, and yeah, they might be pulling priorities, but at times, so does a mission. How often, Alex, do you have free time to go and volunteer? You sometimes need to create that opportunity. And so we found it to be a great soft proxy. Interesting. That is so, so, so interesting. So um, I wanted to give you a chance uh, real quickly to kind of talk your book a little bit. So like of your portfolio of fintech companies that you have, that you work with, uh, can you give us a sense of some of those companies, what they're doing, like what what mission they are focused on enabling? And, and I'd be curious specifically to understand like how they may cross over between some of those different product categories, like kind of your traditional prepaid versus something a little bit more novel. Like what, can you give us a little bit of an overview of some of the the types of partners that you have? One product and one partnership that we have is a national credit builder offering. And so what that does is it takes the end user, the customer, uh, they'll apply for a credit builder product, which it's very simple. There's no credit checks or anything like this. 
At the end of the day, the proceeds go into a CD as they make payments against their loan. Uh, as they hit their payoff point, it releases a CD. They actually make a margin on it. The bank captures a little bit as well, and their credit score improves. And the, the key there is regulatory management because people will go, well, how can you market that as a credit builder? Because we have substantiation that demonstrates that it works. And we're able to provide that should anybody come in, audit, exam, or ask. And so when people are looking at that, because I think when people say credit builder, oh, that sounds like it could be a potential UDAP consideration. Yeah, we identified that right away. We worked with our regulator. We found the substantiation that we would need. And so we monitor that month to month to month to month just to ensure that we're actually delivering on that mission, that we're delivering on that and our partnerships are. We also have products that are really the antithesis to payday lending. So we have um, we have products that are available through folks as employers, and they're in household names that you folks probably uh, do business with almost every day. And so what that is, is it's an opportunity for somebody to get a small dollar loan when they need it the most, which is repaid through your payroll. And it has a far better interest rate than any payday loan. And so that's another example of some of those products in the marketplace that's kind of doing that social good. On the deposit product side, we have products that, so you have elderly parents as an example, or perhaps folks that might not have, might not be capable of contracting on their own, for lack of a better turn of phrase. And so we have products that you can actually put restrictive spends on. So uh, magazine subscriptions, nope, restrict spend. Or uh, they're looking to send money overseas because uh, they won the lottery. Well, no, nope, restricted spend. And so what they're able to do is actually log in and restrict how can my parent or the person that I'm the primary caregiver for actually spend their money? What can they spend it on? So we go through MCC restrictions or otherwise. Uh, as an example, so that's a force for us to provide good or at least peace of mind in that example. Outside of payroll cards, and then we obviously move into the prepaid use cases, which you covered really at the beginning is the un and underbanked and getting financial products in the hands of folks that might regionally not be able to access them. Or from a credit score or checks systems perspective, maybe they had a check fraud early on in their banking career. And so they've been kind of, for lack of a better term of phrase, uh, pushed out of the industry. Well, prepaid is an avenue by which those folks can get access to a financial product to conduct transactions and to really live a, in my mind, what is a competent lifestyle in a technological environment that we have here in the U.S. If you're not able to participate in our modern banking system, you're not really living the quality of life that you could be if you had that opportunity. Awesome. Okay. So those are really, really great examples. I, I appreciate you walking us through those. I wanted to end by just talking a little bit about the backend mechanics of banking as a service. Since again, you're sort of the point person for all of this. I know you see all of this stuff. So one thing I'm curious about is from a technology and systems perspective, uh, obviously one of the challenges that banks, particularly community banks, I feel like have with banking as a service and working with fintech companies is just the integration of the fintech with the bank and just questions like, Who's providing the core system and the ledger for the accounts? How is that structured? How easy is it to integrate with? And of course, we've seen a number of companies come into the market trying to sort of abstract away some of those challenges and provide sort of a middleware that sits between the bank and the fintech company. What does Sunrise Banks do? Like, What's your sort of perspective on solving that technology challenge? Our perspective is really varied. So we, we at Sunrise Banks, we actually do both. We do a direct-to-partner model. So we'll contract with a third-party processor. And then on the BAS side, we also have some go-to-market opportunities there as well. And so when you're talking through, well, roles, responsibilities, BAS, BAS iteration, back-end mechanics, 
And it's unique and neat because each provider in the space is tackling that a different way. And so each one of them is taking a different approach, perhaps, to what they feel the strongest value proposition is for the bank or what I would perceive to be their end customer, which is that financial institution. And so when we're talking about complementary end user controls, because that's absolutely what it comes down to. When you're looking at your SOC and the OCC is coming in, they're going to look at complementary end user controls for data access, transmission, and storage. And at the end of the day, that's really truly what it comes down to, is how are we as enterprises interacting, corresponding, insofar that it pertains to information moving between our organizations. And so when folks have a middleware there to kind of be that abstraction layer, as you would call it, and I love that terminology, between that BAS and the bank, and that makes sense, I think, in some use cases. What I think folks should do, or certainly if they're a bank that's looking to get into the space, is you need to do an assessment as to what you want to be. Are you looking at this space just to participate in it and learn something? Are you really going to grow it as a strategic differentiator? If you're thinking about growing it as a strategic differentiator, it's going to be hard in some respects to be, and we talked about this a little bit in competition, pricing competition, and the sheer amount of opportunities and how saturated the space is, and Bass is actually bringing in new market competitors, which in an effort to get business might be bidding lower than some of the going averages, just in an effort to get an ROI to their board or other shareholders or stakeholders, and all of those things come into play. And so when you're looking at the space, you need to be real and honest with yourself is, is this a space that we're just going to learn from? Or is this a space that's going to be a strategic differentiator? And if it's going to be a strategic differentiator, is the path going to be by way of bass or is it worth trying to figure out direct to partner? And the only reason why I'd mention that is because your solution, which is, well, let's say it's a bass provider. All right. Does that bass provider require middleware? All right. Well, now you're intermediating a couple additional mouths to feed, for lack of a better turn of phrase. And so you're starting to lose out on price competition. At the end of the day, you might be taking more risks that actually aren't netting out for you. So, well, this risk might be acceptable if we we're making this amount of money because I could purchase this software. We could do this to mitigate it. Well, some of those options start to fall away. And so when you're looking at moving into the space, first you need to do a strategic assessment if you're entering that market. Outside of that, I think that when you're looking at bass opportunities, you as an institution need to decide, what are my shortcomings? Do we maybe not have a strong handle on what reconciliation looks like? Uh, maybe we're newer to the space. Well, then prioritize that bass provider that provides that as a solution set for you. But what I would say, and I'm a very big fan of the bass space. In fact, I think it opens up so much avenue for community banks to participate in the national product space, and it socializes those costs. It really does. So instead of paying that cost of compliance, paying to overcome that learning curve, you're kind of taking advantage of that by socially pooling your money and contracting with a bass. The only difference would be is what is your strategic end goal? Because if it's really to move into this space and be competitive, then you're going to want to treat it as a learning experience, not your go-forward path. That makes total sense. That makes total sense. And I guess the last question I have on that front is for the business side of it, in terms of treating it as a strategic priority, how have you sort of talked to the the leadership team at uh, Sunrise about what the balance sheet implications are for different uh, fintech partners that you might bring on? I do sort of wonder about now more so than ever, like, what does this mean if you have deposits coming in from some of these partners and what type of revenue is that generating for you and how do you treat those deposits from a balance sheet perspective and 
how do you deploy those into lending and what assumptions do you make around those? So, I mean, I know it's obviously very nuanced and it very much depends on the details, but like sort of philosophically, how do you think about that and how do you communicate that to the rest of Sunrise? So when we have an opportunity that's bringing a lot of deposits and now there is going to be, of course, a force for good component there as well. So let's say it might be an HSA account. Well, those deposits, and this we're, we might get a little nerdy here, Alex, but I think we're in a safe space for that. Please, this, this is, is a start sticky, right? When we talk about static balances, our balance homeostasis, that consistent balance amount, the more consistent balance that I have on deposit, the more that we can do with it, whether it's investment, but what we choose to do with it a lot of the time is lending. So we are a large commercial banking institution. We have an outstanding rating on our CRA exam. And how do we do that? Well, we take deposits from all over the, the nation, the country, but we put them to work in low to moderate income communities through loans and giving access to financial products so they can grow and create that environment of growth and momentum for their communities. That's what we really look for when we're in this space. How do we capture deposits that are sticky enough or that have a static balance long enough for us to deploy those funds in a unique, creative way, uh, whether it's through our SBA office whether it's through just direct commercial lending, uh, what have you. And so we also use that to fund our national lending footprint as well. So credit builders, that is something that you can get no matter where you're at within the U.S. And so we use the deposits that we get on the prepaid side to give us the balance sheet wherewithal to provide those other products. Uh, so when we're talking about we want to be a force for good, and a lot of that is providing finance options to those that may not get it. And the best way we do that is through capturing deposits. Interesting, interesting. So it's kind of an alignment between um, the priorities you have as someone who wants to to do good, uh, particularly from a lending perspective, with the different partners you have, which can either be deploying capital in the case of uh, credit builder products and providing access to the the lending system, or gathering those sort of sticky deposits and thinking about it in terms of What's the duration of these deposits? How sticky do we think they are? And making sure that you're triple checking those assumptions before deploying that capital. Absolutely. You know, so when we're looking at new opportunities as they're coming in, if it's an existing opportunity, what we like to see is how they transact, how the balances will ebb and flow through that program manager or that product opportunity. Because at the end of the day, we all, we all recognize float share as a margin, right? That's a revenue driver. Rewind four years, nobody cares. Right now, with interest rates where they're at, everybody wants a piece. And so you see that uh, you also have, obviously, as a revenue driver interchange. But for us, when we're able to take our deposit base, move into the lending side, it starts to spread out the margin, for lack of a better turn of phrase, where we can make a little here and a little here, and that amounts to something great. And so it allows us to get really price competitive because we're not just looking at one opportunity. We're looking at the ecosystem. What can we do when we have this, right? So, oh, here's a processor. Well, that processor also has cash loan repayment. Oh, well, what could that look like, right? How could that benefit us more greatly? And so I think at the end of the day, what a lot of folks, what it might behoove the space to do is open up your field of view a little bit. When you're sitting there interacting with a prepaid opportunity, maybe consider the rest of that opportunity. What are they doing with their operating accounts? Do you bid on that? Do you have proficiency in ACH? How do you start to expand your footprint so you can be creative, you can produce very competitive pricing, but still be a community bank? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we'll leave it there. This has been so, so helpful and really educational for me. I thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to chat with us. Um, thank you, and thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. Again, Alex, the pleasure was all mine. I appreciate your time. Have a good day. Thank you. You too. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, why not pass it on to a friend you think would enjoy it too? And be sure to rate us five stars wherever you listen. This episode was brought to you by Nova Payment, a mission-critical financial and payments infrastructure provider. So you don't miss any more fintech stories. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts.